Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, "The Little Husbands" by David H. Keller. This is first published in Weird Tales, July 1928. Uh, this is the third. Uh, David H. Keller story we've done for reading short and deep. The first being the uh, thing in the cellar, which uh, is a very memorable story. And uh, the second being the dead woman, which also is a pretty great story. And this one (laughs) just made me laugh so much. Um, When I started figuring out what this story was going to be about, I just dug it so much. Um, Wow. So uh, I, I, I actually, I remember when I started reading it, and I, I looked at the title. I said, I'm sending this to Eric, even before I got to the point where I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> because I I thought this was a story for you. I but don't I, know what you mean by that. Uh, but I, uh, well, I think that the, the dynamics are, are something you will appreciate. I'm not sure everybody will appreciate this, but I think this is appreciable by a wide audience. But I'd like to uh, get you to read it for us. There are some caveats that the audience should know about, but go uh, go for it. Tell us what what do you have? Well, the scene. there is uh, this is a story from 1928, and they use uh, racist language, or I should I should say the author's written racist language. I'm not a hundred percent sure if this is the character or Keller, but it's certainly a lot looser than what most people today would would be comfortable with. And I think that that, uh, it's important to see it in the context of, of when it was written. Um, but there's a lot going on. Um, and who our sympathies should be with in this story. And Keller, I, I don't think is completely ignorant of, of both sides of those dynamics, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, this is a kind of story that, is terrific to just read without preconceptions. Mm-hmm. And then you can sort of realize what's going on uh, below the text. Um, but we don't have the time to both read it and do that. So here's what I propose, Jesse. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, re- it's a framed story. I'd like to read the opening frame, say some things about what I see going on in there, and then proceed with reading the rest of the story and hope that uh, people will listen more alertly to those issues. Sounds great. Okay. I'll try it then. The Little Husbands. On the decks of a small steamer, which was slowly making its way along the upper stretches of the Amazon, a white man sat on the shaded side and longed for something to relieve the dull monotony of the journey. He had tried everything from learning Spanish to sleep, shooting at sleeping alligators, and yet every day became more unendurable. There seemed to be no end to the river, and each day's mileage was small, unappreciable, compared with what was yet to come. That day was hot, though flies worse than usual. Nothing interested him. He was bored with life. Then he saw the bottle glinting in the sunlight. He sent for his rifle was on the point of shooting it when something made him stop, think, and ask one of the deckhands to jump over and get it for a silver coin. 
Five minutes later, he was trying to get the cork out. His inability to do that so at once irritated him so that he smashed the bottle with a hammer. Inside, he found a number of rolls of paper, leaves from a little notebook, and every page was numbered. The writing was fine but legible. Smithson, the celebrated anthropologist, on his way to the unknown, read with interest the following. So, you know, you could take that just as a scene setting. You know, so the guy comes up and he found a message in a bottle. But look at what's going on. He's a white man. He mm -hmm. just assumes that everything is for his taking. If he doesn't like it, if it's not entertaining enough, he's bored. The day is unendurable. He is living in a Portuguese-speaking area at that moment, but he is trying to learn Spanish, which he's not trying to do well or successfully. He assumes that it's fine to make sport of killing sleeping alligators, mm -hmm. and he is willing to send a deckhand into alligator-infested waters for his own amusement. When the amusement doesn't turn out to be good enough, he smashes it. His money, his origins, his skin color, all of this make him so entitled. But then we find at the end of this opening, Smithson, the celebrated anthropologist mm -hmm. on his way to the unknown, read with interest the following. So he is given a name, one of the few characters in the story, we'll see who has a name, is given a name. He is widely regarded in a, an elite world, and he also happens to share the name of the person after whom the greatest collection of museums in the world is named, the Smithsonian Institutions. Mm -hmm. So what we have here is an enormous portrait of privilege, and I take the time to discuss this, Jesse, because I think it exemplifies what we will see in the rest of the story, just what you suggested. It's hard to believe that Keller, who makes this so visible, although only implicitly, didn't understand that this was outrageous. Mm -hmm. And yet, I'm not sure there's anything in the story that suggests that Keller thought it was outrageous. So it's a very complicated story to come to a settled opinion about, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, revisit that when we hear the rest of the story. And he read the following. I started this after my capture, and I am ending it on the day of my death. I will not make, it will not make any difference to me personally whether it is ever found, but it may be of great interest to the world. I can think of a thousand things that will prevent a bottle from reaching civilization and only one thing that will bring it through, and that is God's desire. My name is Johnson Jeremiah Jenkins, special oil investigator for the Empire Oil Production Company, headquarters, London. They have the names of my nearest relatives, also all my personal belongings. I trust they will properly provide for my mother and see that she is cared for in later years. As this company knows, I was on a special investigation to locate new sources of oil on the upper Amazon. They have my last reports. After I wrote to them, I had trouble with my guides. They did not want to go on this trip, but finally I bribed them to go with me one week's journey up the river. We would paddle in the early morning and late evening and rest in the heat of the day. 
While they rested, I would walk around the jungle hunting for oil indications. On the fifth day of this week, I came upon a series of tracks in the soft earth. They looked a little like those made by a human foot, but ten times larger. And their depth into the earth showed a considerable pressure, possible only by a tremendous weight. I called the head porter and showed him the tracks. He refused to explain them, at least. He said he could not tell about them. But that night, after I refused to go with them, the entire party of natives took French leave while I was asleep and left me alone some thousands of miles from nowhere. They did leave me a canoe, and I was not frightened, not then, for I figured that a white man who acted peacefully was as safe there as he would be on Piccadilly in London. I've always thought this and never went armed except against wild animals. Unfortunately, the natives had taken the boat in which I had my firearms. All I had was a canoe with some food and bedding in it. I had promised myself to go on for one week, and I still had two days to go. The fact that I had to go alone made no difference, so I went. The first day and night, nothing happened. The second day, nothing happened. So I felt rather cheered up as I made camp, ate a little supper, and started to sleep. While falling asleep, I made plans for my return to civilization, starting the next morning. Sometime during the night, I was awakened by a sense of pressure and suffocation. Something had picked me up, wrapped as I was in my blankets, and was carrying me away. My struggles seemed useless, so I ceased to kick. It seemed futile to cry, nothing to be done but wait and see what happened. I was carried on through the night and finally put down on the ground as soon as I could. I unwrapped myself from the twisted folds of my blanket and tried to find out where I was. I felt the walls of a hut which were woven out of reeds. The the top was just high enough to touch with my head. In the darkness, I thought it felt like a large beehive, such as I had seen so often at home, made out of rope. There being nothing else to do, I spread my blanket on the ground and tried to sleep. I was sure that morning would show me I had fallen into the hands of a tribe of savages. Morning came at last, and I could see streaks of sunlight through the cracks of the hut. I heard a voice sing, It's a long way to Tipperary. And I knew then that I had found a friend. Later, the door of my hut was untied, and the same Irish voice asked me to come out. It was a new and peculiar world I found myself in. There was a collection of little huts such as I had spent the night in. Around these huts was a cleared space and around that a circular fence made of tree trunks bound together with thick ropes. It was a fence such as I had often seen in France, but this fence was 50 feet high and on the top was a crown of tangled cactus. As a prison, it seemed perfect. I saw the huts, I saw the fence, And then I saw the men. Later on, I found there were 18 of them, and I was one more. They were of all nationalities and all colors, and they all seemed to be trying the best they could to keep from showing that they were very unhappy. My Irish friend was singing, and some of the Frenchmen were dancing the tango. Everything was nice and spotless, and the men all seemed clean and well-fed. Several had on rather elaborate suits of skins, and others very ornate headdresses of multicolored feathers. They saw me and at once ran to where the Irishman and I were standing. A dozen questions were asked me in almost as many different languages. Who was I? Where did I come from? Who really had won the war? 
I tried to talk, but they made so much noise for a few minutes that they could not hear me. Finally, they became quiet, and I told them all about myself that I thought worthwhile and gave them the latest news of the world. Then I asked them what it all meant. At that, they looked worried and said I would find out soon enough. When I urged them for decency's sake not to keep me waiting, they talked the matter over and delegated one of their number to do the talking for them. He was an Englishman, Sir Rollo Rowland of the Dorchester Rowlands, and seemed to be rather an expert on birds. At least that is what had brought him into the upper Amazon Valley. This is going to be rather hard to tell you, Jenkins, old chappy, but the fact is that we are all the captives of a bally lot of women. They have a hobby of collecting men, just as I used to do with birds, and keeping them in these dinky little huts. Each man belongs to one woman. Rather a clever arrangement. What? They wash him and dress him and give him little gimcracks to eat and make little clothes for him, and every woman wants her man to look a little bit snappier than the other men. So long as the man behaves himself, the woman is devilishly nice to him and shows him a bully good time, but... When she gets on the outs with him, she puts him under the sod and hunts around for another man. Part of the time, they have to be content with niggers, but what they really like most is white men, and the snappier the men are, the, the longer they last. The woman had caught you, who the woman that caught you has ha- the woman that caught you has had a Portuguese. He is in his hunt now in a blue funk and small wonder, my lad, small wonder. It is goodbye to him and how do you do to you? You understand that we are their husbands. How does that seem? Some fine ending for an Oxford man? What? I have lasted longer than most of them on account of my education and then I learned to speak their language. That made me the official interpreter and had a lot to do with keeping me alive. There are just 18 of these women. That is, just that many old enough to have husbands. There are a lot of girls, and no boys, and no men, except us. I guess they kill the boy babies. Perhaps they only have girls born to them. This woman who was married to the Portuguese was not very well pleased with him. I guess he was rather surly when alone with her, and one has to please them, my lad, one has to please them. So he gets killed and you have his place. His wife was away some days hunting for a man and I guess he will suit her. Young, English, good looking. There's not much use of telling you more. You will find out about it in time. Just a word of caution. Forget the world and do not try to escape. Death is not so bad, but it is unpleasant to be hung up on those cacti and just left there to die. If you look closely, you will see some bones up there. I was here when the last man was put up there. That was all he would say just then. All day we were left alone. Night came and I went to my hut and tried to sleep. The next morning the Irishman called me to come out and have breakfast with him. As we were eating, a shrill cry rang through the air and every man went and sat down, rather docile-like, in front of his hut. The Portuguese, shaking with fright, crawled inside his hut. When I first saw it come over the fence... I thought it was some odd kind of a snake, light brown, and then I saw that it was an arm, and the fingers reached down to the front of the Portuguese's hut, and not finding him there, pushed the hut over, picked him up, screaming as he was with fright, and carried him over the fence. All the men kept very still, and I noticed that they looked at me in a rather peculiar manner. I did not know what it all meant, but I knew enough 
to keep quiet. Then the arm came over again, and the fingers picked me up. There was not much use of protesting, so I just shut my eyes, only I had a sick feeling in the bottom of my stomach, like a seasickness. In just a few minutes, I felt that I was on the ground again and slowly opened my eyes and looked around. The women were evidently having some kind of a meeting. If they had been smaller, they would not have been so bad looking. But any woman 70 feet high looks rather peculiar. (laughs) They were all sitting in a circle, a ring of gigantic figures squatting on the ground. Alongside of me was the Portuguese, and he was not very happy. We were right between the legs of one of the women. I tried not to look at her face, but I just couldn't help it. And she saw that I was looking at her and smiled. I smiled back and waved my hand to her, sort of jolly-like, though I did not feel that way at all. The woman seemed pleased with me because she started to laugh and even clapped her hands. It sounded like thunder. She even reached down and patted me with one of her fingers. Then they had some kind of ceremony with singing. Their song was harmonious enough, but the sound was like exploding cannon. And I held my hands over my ears. I wish that I had kept my eyes shut, too. For after the singing, the woman who seemed to own us took a sharp stick shaped like a lead pencil, only it was about 50 feet long, and right there in front of us all, she scraped a hole in the ground, and then she took the Portuguese and squeezed him between her thumb and finger as you would squeeze a bug. He gave one yell And that was the end of him. She threw him into the hole and covered him up with loose dirt. And then with a wild yell that echoed through the jungle, she jumped up and stamped on his grave with her feet till it was all nice and smooth. Reaching over, she picked me up and started to rub me against her face and mouth. Her lips were soft enough, but it was a devilish, unpleasant sensation. Months passed after that. I was well-treated, had lots to eat, and no mother could have kept her baby cleaner than the woman who was my wife kept me. She used to go on long trips through the jungle, carrying me in a little fur bag on her back. She tried to talk to me and wanted me to teach her English. It seems that some of her husbands had been Americans, and she had picked up some of the language. I was well enough treated, but the life was hard in a way. It took a philosopher to stand it, a regular stoic. Lots of the men they caught couldn't stick it at all, tried to escape or committed suicide in some other way. I saw that it was helpless and hopeless. Nothing to do till they caught some chap with firearms and dynamite or poison. Two years later, things are no better. I am heartsick and homesick. The woman had a child, but it was a boy, and without saying a word to me, they killed it, like as if it were a dog. She tried to cheer me up, but I was too heartbroken to respond. She said she hoped the next one would be a girl and tried to speak softly to me, but her voice sounded at best like distant thunder. Hope the next one would be a girl. One year later. Have lost track of the time, but I think I've been here four years. Things change a lot. Only the three of us, the Englishman, the Irishman, and I, are left of those who were here when I came. The rest are all new, most of them a surly lot. It is harder for the women to get new men, and the men they do get are not gentlemen and make poor companions to the rest of us. I have the fever a lot, and I'm losing weight. I'm going to try to put these papers 
in a bottle and watch my chance to drop it in the water the next time the woman takes me out. The fever keeps up. I have been sick three weeks. Part of the time I was out of my head. The Englishman told me that when the woman picked me up, I cursed her. Does she know enough to understand? Later on. The women have been out and gathered up a group of American explorers, all college men and young fellows. I believe that my woman got one of them. Yesterday, one of the old crowd was killed and one of the new men married to his widow. Next day, another marriage took place today. Later, all the new men are married but one. I believe he belongs to my woman. She has just told me that I am sick too much of the time and that she wants somebody that is younger. She said that if I wanted her to, she would let me escape. Took her offer. Next morning, too weak to escape. Had a hard chill and I'm burning with fever. Have had to talk with a man who is going to take my place. I've had a talk with a man who is going to take my place and asked him to dispose of this bottle the first time he had a chance. Told him I had no hard feeling. The Americans are arranging to escape, but I know they will fail. Goodbye. I hear them singing. Johnson, Jeremiah, Jenkins. Poor Jenkins was killed this morning, and I am the new husband of his widow. I am glad to be able to say that he was so sick from the fever that he was unconscious at the time of his death. I'm going to drop his message in the river as soon as I can. I have read it and talked to Sir Rollo Rowland, and the thing looks rather dark, but we hope that our Native American wit will find a way of escape. This is a rather serious business for grown-up men to be in. James Jones... Professor, Biology, Ricewick University, USA. <laughs> um, I I love this story, Eric. It's so funny. Um, <laughs> the way you're reading it is tragic, um, but uh, there's so many times I laughed out loud at what's what's so funny is I think it's it's uh, a psychological fear story that we get after World War II as well a lot of that in science fiction and we get that here um i i note all the references to world war one um it's it's kind of interesting because this is from 1928 uh presumably this story is being uh a, f- a few years in transit to the magazine where it was published but um if you think about the era women are getting the vote women have brought in uh, largely women have brought in prohibition. Um, there's a lot of the empowerment of women. And this is a story that speaks to the fear of men. Um, it, it's really, um, it's really quite fun. And it also has this ancient history, right? These are the Amazons of legend, literally in the Amazon, but not as we expected to see them. <laughs> no, Right, they're strong women, but their strength is is gigantic. I also I want to place it in the context of a few other stories. This title doesn't lend itself to that examination, but certainly the content does. Um, an 1833 story by Edgar Allan Poe, manuscript found in a bottle. Mm-hmm. This story is a manuscript found in a bottle, except for the opening frame. And it does have a closing frame, right? The uh, which is also inside the bottle. 
notably James Jones, again, another JJ. In fact, Johnson Jeremiah Jenkins. I think uh, Keller's inviting us to speculate as to the authenticity of this story. Ryswick University. No such university exists in the United States, as far as I can tell. But more importantly, uh, in my researches, I've noted that uh, Ryswick uh, is actually a name that Keller uses again and again in his stories. At least two other stories have characters whose name is Ryswick. It's not a common word, not a common name. Um, In addition, in this uh, chain of uh, manuscripts found in a bottle that I, I, it must have been something in, in the culture even before I started reading it, but because I, I was very fond of the idea of, and I literally did it as a child, uh, write a note, usually I'm trapped on a desert island, and then I throw it in the, in the ocean when we're going on a ferry across somewhere because I just think it'd be so cool to find one of those. Um, there's a famous, well, a famous novel in Canada, if you can consider a science fiction novel from 1888 famous. A strange manuscript found in a copper cylinder, which is directly inspired by a couple of Poe, including manuscripts found in a bottle. There's uh, uh, a cornblue story called Manuscript Found in a uh, Chinese Fortune Cookie, which is pretty cute. Um, so this is fitting into a tradition. And yet, um, I think there's a lot going on psychologically if we think about who and what these characters are doing as the as the husbands the uh what completely disempowered husbands to women who treat them as ken dolls essentially right they dress them up they compete <laughs> to to play house with them they literally give them a house and then they dispose of them generally without love, right? Um, but it's all one-sided power. And I think this is so interesting. It's psychologically interesting. And it's also, it's, it's such a testament to the period and the, the ideas that are inside the minds of men at the time, I think. Let me supplement that. I, I agree with it fully. I think one of the th- difficult things for us is to figure out whether Keller, who makes the minds of men so clear here to us modern readers almost a century later, mm-hmm. um, whether he thought, as we do, about those men. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, he says, I'll repeat this, um, if we had been smaller— they would not have been so bad looking as if that were the crucial criterion for a woman. Mm-hmm. But any woman 70 feet high looks rather peculiar. They were all sitting in a circle, a ring of gigantic figures squatting on the ground. Alongside of me was the Portuguese, and he was not very happy. We were right between the legs of one of the women. I tried not to look at her face. Her face? Come right. on. Right? <laughs> what? Well, they're literally and, making babies with them. Exactly. Uh, and they're um, making babies of them as well. It's completely and, unstated. And, exactly. So they called the little husbands, and yet it says, I was treated well, had lots to eat. No mother could have kept her baby cleaner than the woman who was my wife kept me. 
men are infantilized when women get too big. And the reason, of course, is we can tell in the 21st century is because men infantilize women in a patriarchy. And, but mm-hmm. and all of the reasons for that are here. It's classist. It's mm-hmm. elitist. It is racist. It depends upon uh, money. It depends upon uh, national origin. The Irishman is automatically a friend because he speaks English, mm-hmm. but he doesn't get a name. But Sir Rollo Rowland is mm-hmm. the highest ranking person. And so spontaneously, all the other men say he should be their spokesman. Right. I mean, this the, the ideas here, men just get higher and higher, women lower and lower. But if the women had the power to simply overpower men, this is what they would do. Is Keller happy about that? Is he criticizing men and women? It's, it's extraordinary because you can't tell where exactly. it ends. You can't mm-hmm. tell where it ends. By the way, I would add, um, there are other stories that are behind this. Jeremiah is the middle name of our writer. Mm-hmm. He, he is a prophet known for the extraordinary violence of his prophecies in the Bible. And there are 18 women, just exactly 18 women, which mm-hmm. is the biblical number for life. And they are, in fact, 70 feet high sitting in mm-hmm. a circle, which makes them the Sanhedrin, the group of wise men, or perhaps though the Septuagint, the 70 scholars who translated the Bible. This is a group of women who come up out of the past from before Christianity and in fact are in, as you say, the ancient Amazons, mm-hmm. right? What Plato tells us about, and they are the rulers, and where they are the rulers, if the men don't act right, they kill them. Mm-hmm. They're wanted as playthings and as sex mates. And if, I, if this story had been written today, I would feel certain that the author wants us to see that mm-hmm. that's how men treat women. Mm-hmm. But I can't figure this out. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it, it's it, it's, it's I, I, the the thing that makes me think that he is being playful is all the repeated letters in people's the few names that we get. Rollo Rowland of uh, the the Dorchester Rowlands, right? So we actually have two or three R's in that name, depending on how you count. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the. Johnson, Jeremiah Jenkins, and James Jones. Uh, it's inviting sort of a, a, a squinty-eyed look at it because it, it, <laughs> I don't think those are accidental names. I think oh. those are deliberate re- repetitions. I think he's winking. Um, and as you point out, <laughs> he, he places them. There's a lot of a closing of eyes and not opening them. There's a lot of looking <laughs> away. Um, he is inviting us to put our own images in these places, just figuring out how the, uh, the sex act would work is hilarious. <laughs> right? I mean, Indeed. these are, these are, she, the first thing she does after she marries him without his permission, not being able to speak his language again, a very, uh, pointing at the patriarchy, uh, system, right. Is she brings her, him up to her face and rubs him all over her lips and uh, and face, like he's a little puppy or a uh, lipstick or something, right? This is this is the complete disempowerment of men, and the only thing that can keep these men alive is acting happy, act, acting gay, acting as if 
everything is fine and being very entertaining by dancing and being intellectual with these these huge creatures that seem to not give one whit of interest to them other than as toys. That uh, is and totally, sex, obviously. Uh, uh, well, that I, that seems to be sort of the, uh, but the, they seem to be even keeping them as in competition with each other. Like uh, right. mine's prettier than yours, right? <laughs> the, well, the, the the new American is a trophy husband. Mm, mm-hmm. It's it's absolutely absolutely. I think it's designed to be humorous, and I think he is ridiculing. But it's so hard to say. It's so hard to say for sure. Oh, I, I, I'm absolutely in agreement with you. It is meant to be funny. There's winking going on. And we still have to worry about what he wants, Keller wants us to ultimately settle on. Mm-hmm. And frankly, there's only one way to do that. And that would be to keep delving further into the patterns within this story. Mm-hmm. In other words, as lighthearted as it seems... There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.